calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Infected is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash infected. Chapter 68. The Hatching Perry sat on the couch, transfixed by Fatty Patty's ordeal. They are hatching, hatching, hatching. The triangles twitched under her skin, slowly picking up speed, jittering faster and faster. Her convulsion stopped suddenly. She rolled onto her back, fingers sticking into the air, locked like skeletal claws. Her face wrinkled in a wide-eyed blast of panic and a teeth-bearing, breathless scream. It was a look of such utter, unbearable agony that Perry couldn't suppress a shudder. And he was next. He felt sick, as if a gnarled hand squeezed and twisted his intestines. It was a physical reaction to a mind pulled in opposite directions. On one side, he felt hopelessness, far worse than anything he'd known since the ordeal began. He watched this fat woman writhe with terror, watched her face contort and scrunch as she tried to scream but couldn't find the air to do so. Her body shuddered in agony, making her flesh jiggle endlessly. Despite this horror show, which held the promise of a painful death for him as well, he felt an impossible level of euphoria, a feeling that this was the beginning of something great and something wonderful. Joy and ecstasy ripped through his mind, better than any drug, vastly superior to sex. This was clearly an overflow emotion, but it was so strong, so clear, so vivid and so pure he was no longer able to separate it from his own. At that moment, the triangle feelings saturated his very being. He thought of killing her, slicing her throat with the butcher knife, ending her misery. But he couldn't bring himself to stand up, to reach for the blade, because he had to know what would happen. Besides, she was dying anyway, and wasn't birth always a happy occasion? A wave of fresh pain washed across her body, making her jerk like an electric chair victim. She rolled a little from side to side, but mostly stayed on her back. That wide-eyed death stare focused on some interesting detail of the stucco ceiling. Perry watched, surprised and disgusted, as she suddenly pissed all over the floor. The triangles picked up speed. They seemed to pulse as they sought to break free. Their large heads pushed out against her pliant, stretching skin, then sank back for another try. With each thrust, 
Perry saw the triangle's outlines, saw that their bodies had grown to a shallow pyramid shape. It reminded Perry of the good old days of Jiffy Pop on the kitchen stove, the swelling volume of popcorn slowly expanding the tinfoil covering. The triangles weren't going to stop. They were clearly intent on popping out of her skin like a champagne cork, celebrating their new life in the new world. Blisters burst one by one, coating her skin with thick, yellowish pus. Blood trickled from the edges of the triangles, shooting out in thin jets each time they thrust outward. They are hatching! Is it beautiful? Let us see. They are hatching! Hatching! Perry ignored his own triangles, his attention locked on those of Fatty Patty. Her triangles thrust out farther. Her skin started to tear. They pushed their way out like little turkey timers at Thanksgiving, the red pop-up button telling everyone when the big bird was done and it was time to eat. The three on her stomach were the worst to watch. They had started by only pushing up a quarter of an inch or so, a minor throbbing, a pulsating blister in her gut. Each throbbed up at a slightly different rate, now picking up steam, pushing out almost six inches in a quick jump stretching the skin on her stomach like little triangular penises becoming erect and flaccid, erect and flaccid, erect and flaccid, spurting blood threads in every direction. He couldn't see the ones trapped underneath her white ass, but he imagined they struggled, pinned by the weight of her body. There were noises. Not just the pathetic little whines escaping the weak-willed woman, but faint clicking noises as well. They grew a bit louder every few seconds, and seemed to coincide with the triangle's outward thrusts. With each click, he felt his happiness and euphoria spike upward like a heartbeat pulse on an EKG machine. The one on her hip, the one that had stared so malevolently, so insolently, was the first to break free. It ripped out of her, not with a tearing sound, but rather with a loud splurt, followed by a splat as it hit the far wall, right where Perry's Sports Illustrated cover would have hung had they been in his apartment. The hateful creature stuck, wriggling and weak, temporarily trapped in its own slime. It bore little resemblance to the triangles that remained locked inside his own body. It still had the unmistakable triangle head and the black eyes, but there any similarity ended. It looked no more like the larva lurking under his own skin than a butterfly looks like a caterpillar. The black things he'd seen snaking under her skin were tentacles of some sort, more than a foot long and thick. They looked very strong and solid. The triangle shape had grown into a shallow, three-inch-high pyramid, each side of which held one black eye. The eyes no longer stared up. Now they looked out, so that if the thing walked on those tentacles, it would be able to see in all directions. The creature's wriggling freed it from the wall. It fell to the carpet, where it struggled to right itself. Perry's emotions flickered back and forth from fear and disgust to elation and indescribable joy, like a strobe light on a dance floor, leaving each alternating emotion a freeze-frame picture in his mind's eye. This shit could drive a guy crazy. Somewhere, an emotion of his own called to him to get up and kill this thing, but he remained fixed on the couch, too overwhelmed to move. The newly hatched triangle attempted to stand on floppy tentacle legs. It looked very wrong and odd because the legs had no rigidity, They weren't at all like an insect's skinny, multi-jointed legs or an animal's muscular limbs, but something new and different. With a shake and a continuing wobble, the creature rose up on the tentacles. Once up, the pyramid point stood about a foot off the ground. They will grow! They will grow! 
The tail that had anchored itself in Fatty Patty's body dangled limply from the center of the triangle. A weak, limp-dick appearance, dripping blood and pale slime. It hung down to the floor, where the last inch or two lay unmoving on the carpet. The newly hatched creature stood there on unsure legs, its clicking noises loud and distinctive. Fatty Patty let out a small scream as the triangles on her stomach broke loose almost simultaneously. They sprang out like vicious jack-in-the-boxes, streaming trails of blood and pus as they came down in different parts of the room. One flew through the air and landed on the couch to Barry's left, as if it had just stopped by to watch the Lions game on a frosty fall Sunday afternoon. He got a much better look at this one. Its pus and blood-covered skin was no longer blue, but a pockmarked, translucent black. He could see strange, alien organs inside, something fluttering spastically that must have served as a heart, and some other colored bits of flesh, the purpose of which he wouldn't dare venture a guess. The end of the tail had landed on his leg. It moved a little, leaving a slime trail on Perry's jeans. The tail's end was ragged and torn, slowly leaking purple blood. That must be why they thrust so hard to escape her. They had to separate from the tail, most of which was left behind in Fatty Patty, an umbilical cord and safety cable they no longer needed now that they were free of her incubatory body. The triangle struggled to lift itself, but one tentacle leg slipped between the couch cushions. Perry gazed down at it with the strobe light of emotion still flashing at MTV video speed. He felt a primitive urge to smash it, while simultaneously he felt compelled to gently lift the newborn from the couch, hold it adoringly, and set it on the floor to walk for the first time, beaming down at it with the proud smile of a new parent. Turn her over! Turn her over! The command yanked Perry from his maddening emotional conflict. What did you say? Turn her over! They are hatching! They wanted him to roll her over, so the triangles on each ass cheek could hatch properly. He looked at Patty's shuddering body, now covered with blood, pus, vomit, and purple slime. She had ceased all movement. Her eyes were glazed and fixed open, her eyebrows raised, and her face frozen in a sneer of terror. She looked almost dead. Caterpillar dead. All hosts probably died. It made much more sense than having the ex-host in a position to kill weak hatchlings. What had finally done her in? Some toxin? Screaming mental overload? That thought crystallized Perry's emotion into two camps, polarized his hatred of the triangles and the overflow euphoria at the hatching. He pushed back the happiness, the joy. Those emotions weren't his, and he didn't want them in his head anymore. Turn her over! Turn her over now! The mind scream slammed his attention back to the dead fatty patty, and suddenly he knew how they had killed her. He recognized the look on her face and the whimpering noises she made, realized why she'd just lain there as the things ripped free from her body, why she didn't put up a fight. It was because an all-out mind scream had paralyzed her. They'd screamed so loud, it killed her. Perry jumped off the couch and knelt next to her body. His knees slipped a little in the thin film of puke, blood, pus, purple that coated the carpet. He moved quickly. He didn't want another mind scream, one that might be bad enough to make his brains drip out his ears like a McDonald's gray matter shake. Turn her over! They are hatching! They are hatching! Perry put his hands on her shoulder and pushed, only to find that instead of rolling, she just slid across the muck. She was dead weight, pardon the pun. Repetitive clicking noises filled the room. Some came fast, some slow. All had different pitches and volumes. He could feel his triangles growing impatient. 
Another mind screen was rapidly approaching. The crack of the master's whip on the slave who can't perform. The power had changed hands once again. He put his bad knee on her left shoulder and reached across her dead body. He grabbed her high up on her right arm. He pulled back on the arm, slowly turning her. She flumped onto her stomach, her tits squishing out like half-inflated inner tubes. Free from the weight, the triangles on her ass wasted no time. They thrust only a few times before ripping free in a great gout of blood, an orgasmic finish to the necrophilic sex-slash-birth. One flew out at an angle, hitting the kitchen table before falling to the floor. The other sailed upwards in a steep arc, flying toward a lampshade. Like a LeBron James jumper swishing through the hoop, the triangle slid through the lampshade's open top. It hit the illuminated bulb, first with a sudden sizzle, then a loud crack as the tiny body exploded. Black goo splattered against the inside of the lampshade, a wet silhouette as it slowly dripped towards the floor. Thanks for saving me the trouble, Perry thought. A wave of anger and depression crashed over him, overflow emotions again, fighting for mental space with his own feelings of villainous satisfaction at the newborn triangle's untimely death. What happened? Where did he go? Why doesn't he answer? His triangle still couldn't see, he remembered, because he remained fully dressed. They only sensed that the newborn was gone. He felt their random anger coursing through his body. He had to choose his words carefully. He slid up his sweatshirt sleeve and held it up to the lamp. He hatched right into a light bulb. It was an accident. In his voice, he heard that servile tone, the tone of Fatty Patty trying to placate him, the tone of his mother trying to avoid a beating. It fried him on the spot. His answer appeared to satisfy the triangles. They said no more. The steady clicking slowed considerably. The baby triangles were crouched down on their tentacles, resting their pyramid bodies against the carpet. Their eyes closed. They stopped moving. They appeared to be asleep. Only an occasional click escaped their still bodies. The strange aroma of burned triangle flesh filled the room, slightly overpowering the odors of Perry's own rotting shoulder, the vomit, and the smells of birthing that floated in the still apartment air. He felt his own triangles fall asleep, their constant mental buzzing slowly fading away into near nothingness, like a barely audible car audio tuned to AM static. He was alone, left to gaze upon the face-down, dead, fatty Patty. He knew he didn't have much time. In addition to the three triangles in his own body, he had five hatchlings to deal with, creatures that he knew nothing about. How long would they sleep? What would they do when they awoke? Apart from the questions that raged through his mind, he knew one thing for certain. He wasn't going to end up like the weakling lying on the living room floor, giant fist-sized holes left in her corpse. If he had to die, it wouldn't be like a victim, waiting nicely for the three stooges to rip out of his rotting body. If he was going out, it would be on his feet, fighting every step of the way, like a Dossie. His shoulder throbbed, his back itched, and his mind spun feverishly, thinking of a way to kill them all. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. 
in a time when the world outside is unsafe. It's vital for Piura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Piura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Chapter 69, Flashback. On Du's 22nd birthday, he'd been getting piss-faced drunk at a small bar in Saigon with his three closest friends, all members of his platoon. The bar had white walls, Christmas lights across the ceiling, and plenty of working girls. Hell of a party that turned out to be. Du had stumbled to the bathroom to take a piss, and in midstream, heard a bone-thumping explosion followed by a scream or two. He wasn't quite sobered up by the blast but what he saw when he came out of the bathroom obliterated his buzz completely. The white walls were streaked with chunks of bone, bits of hair, and bright red trails slowly dripping down the wall like living Rorschach blots. The blood and bits belonged to his buddies, and the seven-year-old suicide girl who'd entered the bar wearing the latest fashion in homemade explosive backpacks. That incident, that hated memory, was the first thing to enter his mind when he walked into Perry Dossie's apartment. So much blood. On the walls, on the floor, on the furniture. The kitchen floor looked like a pattern of brown and red rather than the original white. There was even blood on the kitchen table, some of which had slowly spilled over the edge and dried in a thin, brittle brown stalactite. The apartment crawled with Ann Arbor cops, state troopers, and men from the Washtenaw County Coroner's Office. It's really something, huh? Dew looked at Matt Mitchell, the local coroner who'd escorted him to the crime scene. Mitchell had a crooked smile and a glass eye that never seemed to look the right way. His face held a small smirk, almost an expectant look, as if he were waiting to see if the gore would make Dew blow chow. Dew nodded towards the body. You got an idea on the couch potato Jesus over there? Couch potato Jesus? Mitchell looked at the body, smiled, then looked back to Dew. Hey! That's pretty frickin' funny. Thanks. I got a million of them. Mitchell flipped through a small notepad. Uh, the victim is William Miller, co-worker of Dossie's and apparently a friend. They went to college together. Isn't this an awful lot of blood to come from one victim? Mitchell gave Dew another quizzical look, but this time it held a bit of surprised respect. That's pretty observant, Agent Phillips. Not many people would have noticed that. You seen stuff this intense before? Oh, maybe once or twice. We're still typing all the spills. There's more in the bathroom and even some in the bedroom. I'll tell you right now, it's not all from the victim. You hit that nail right on the head. Mitchell walked into the kitchen, being careful not to disturb the cluster of evidence technicians gathering samples from the floor and the table. 
I think there's another victim we haven't seen yet. Another victim? You mean Dossie had another victim and he took the body with him? Mitchell gave the apartment a sweeping gesture. How else could you explain all this? Ever think it might have come from Dossie himself? Mitchell laughed. <laughs> yeah, right, from the perp himself. I'd like to see someone lose this much blood and keep on kicking. You find anything else? Mitchell nodded and pointed to the kitchen counter. An evidence bag held a wrongly folded map. Maybe something, maybe nothing. That map was on the kitchen counter. There was some tacky blood fingerprints on it, not dry yet, so he was looking at it not very long ago. He'd circled Wajamiga. That a town? Dew asked as he picked up the evidence bag holding the map. The bloody fingerprints were still wet enough to smear the plastic. The words, This is the place, were scrawled on the map in handwriting so bad it was barely legible. Yeah, Mitchell said. About, oh, uh, 90 minutes or so from here. You notify Wajamiga police to be on the lookout? They don't have any. Town is too small. But we let the Tuscola County Sheriff's Department know, yeah. Hell, every cop in the state is on the lookout anyway. Do nodded approvingly. Maybe something, maybe nothing, as Mitchell had said. Do leaned more towards the something side. It didn't take a genius to figure out Dossie hadn't circled Wajamiga on a whim. The map didn't show much in the way of civilization around the town. In fact, it looked like there might be just a shitload of trees. Trees. Deep woods, even. As soon as he got out of this apartment, he'd have Murray's boys focus the satellite coverage on Wajamiga instead of Ann Arbor. The brown polyester-wearing Bob Zimmer wove through the crowded apartment, dodging the photographer and another cop before stopping in front of Dew and Mitchell. This just gets better and better, Phillips, Zimmer said. I just talked to the governor. Again. FBI says Dossie and the Vietnamese kid were working together. They found a bunch of emails. Homeland Security raised the alert level of fucking red to severe. Dossie has knowledge of a bomb. Dew nodded. I told you someone else might be involved in those murders. We figure it was Dossie. To think there's a cell right here in our midst, Zimmer said. And why didn't someone bother to pick up a fucking phone and let us know there's terrorists in town? His eyes showed doubt, as if his bullshit meter was going off, but they also showed he'd follow through. Bullshit or no bullshit, Bob Zimmer wasn't taking any chances with the safety of his men or his town. Gwen is what we call a sleeper, Bob. He's just another foreign college student. Stays quiet until he's needed, then boom. Only we don't think he's operating under directions. We think he just snapped. Somewhere along the line, he or his buddies recruited Dossie. Why the hell would a white-collar American fall in with terrorists? Mitchell asked. We don't know yet. Maybe he was better at the man because he worked some shit computer job and didn't pull in millions in the NFL. It doesn't fucking matter. Dossie might know about a bomb. We don't know where it is. We don't know what it is. We have to get to him, and fast. Zimmer stared at Dew. I'll tell you right now, I don't like this. We've got nine people dead, at least one killer is on the loose, and there's a goddamn bomb out there somewhere. I can't help but think we could have prevented this if you'd let us know you were watching the Vietnamese kid. We had to see who would contact him, who would supply him. It was a sting, Bob, and it went bust. The key thing to remember is we don't want anyone else getting killed. And if you want to save lives... Just make sure your men know exactly what they're dealing with. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to go make some phone calls.
Dew walked out of the blood-splattered apartment, leaving Bob Zimmer to grind his teeth in frustration. Chapter 70 Dear Old Dad His shoulder pulsed with a deep, steady, low-frequency throb. His ass echoed the beat. This internal rotting thing was getting serious. He had no idea how close his own triangles were to hatching. The areas where he still had them, middle of his back just below the shoulder blades, left forearm, his left testicle, had stopped itching or hurting. A brief glimmer of hope flashed in his head that they might be dead, that they had just passed on in their sleep like some beloved grandpa. But that was bullshit. He'd rather have the itching back than what he felt right now. The spots felt numb. Completely numb. Something in his mind flashed localized anesthetic. He wondered if they were doing so much damage that the pain would have incapacitated him, shut him down, so they had to block the pain, let him continue normally, let him pursue those all-important duties of eating, of avoiding the soldiers. He shuddered remembering the black tentacles snaking underneath Fatty Patty's skin minutes before the hatching. She hadn't looked as if she were in pain or any discomfort at all. Perhaps she'd felt the same numbness. Perhaps she'd been numb for days. The real problem was he had no concept of the timetable. When his slumbering triangles awoke, how long before they started screaming in his head? How long before their final death song? He didn't have the luxury of waiting. He had to assume that when they awoke, he'd lose his chance to purge them from his body. On top of that, the Columbos were outside, and it would only be a matter of time before they figured out where he was. Dawn was about to break. They'd see him when he made a run for it. They probably had bugs in every apartment anyway, listening, doing their big brother gig. Spy satellites could be searching for him right now. X-ray vision, peering through the walls and ceiling, seeking him out. I don't know if you can hear me, Daddy, but I know you're right, Perry said. Time to shit or get off the pot. Time to show them who's the strong one. Time to show them all. Chapter 71 Cheap Buzz Her bathroom layout was identical to his, but there the similarity ended. Hers was decorated in seashell colors, everything matching perfectly, from the pale yellow towels to the porcelain clamshell soap dish. Every surface sparkled. It wasn't until Perry swallowed six Tylenol from a bottle he found in the immaculate medicine cabinet that it clicked. The pills slid down his throat, and it all fell into place. At times, the triangles had acted weird, showing emotions instead of talking in their monotone robotic voice. Not just when they were mind-screaming incoherently, but when they were talking to him in a sing-song voice, a lilting, mental speech that sounded almost silly compared to their normal business-like vocal patterns. They acted like that right after he took Tylenol. And silly wasn't the right word for it. The right word was stoned. Stoned out of their collective little gourds. Something in the Tylenol got them higher than a kite he'd accidentally discovered a weapon to wield in the final battle. Perry smiled. Put on a good buzz, boys, he said, then swallowed back six more Tylenol, 
You're going to need it where you're going. The Tylenol buzz was the final piece in his puzzle to outsmart them all. The Triangles, the Hatchling, the Columbos, everybody. Perry would show them who was King Crap. No bow to doubt it. He had a plan, kiddies, a big-brained plan that would expose the stupidity of his conspiring enemies. Be a hot time in the old town tonight, he thought. You do not fuck with a Dossie. He quietly hopped back into the living room. The hatchlings were still asleep, their slumbering clicks punctuating the silence of the apartment. Perry hummed a tune, the words rolling through his mind. Burn, burn, yes you're gonna burn. Chapter 72. Top. Dew's vision felt fuzzy. He pulled off his leather gloves and rubbed his eyes. The cold clung to his clammy fingers. His breath streaming out in bellowing cones, Dew put the gloves back on and refocused his attention on the apartment complex's snow-covered roads. The cops hadn't found a damn thing during the night. The giant-sized, all-American psychopath was still running around like a rolling landmine, waiting to bump into something and explode. Not a word from Wajamiga either. Dew had dispatched several agents to the town. There were extra state police patrolling the area. The local police force was alerted to the danger. An NSA signal intelligence agent scanned almost every line of communication in and out of the town. That and the fact that Perry's face was plastered on every TV screen in the Great Lakes area made it unlikely he'd slipped into Wajamiga unnoticed. The public was alert and looking. At least in the Great Lakes region, the hunt for Perry Dossie had already taken on the mythical proportions of the O.J. Simpson chase. Another murdering football player on the lam. The murder was about seven hours old. If Dossie had fled, he could already be in Indiana, Chicago, Fort Wayne, or on the Ohio Turnpike heading for the East Coast. But Dew knew that Dossie hadn't gotten far. Let the public think what they want. Let them get the man's description and keep a sharp eye out. Dossie might surprise them all, you never knew. And if Dossie was heading somewhere, it was better that Joe Public knew enough to steer clear. Dossie's Ford remained safely under the carport's snow-covered metal awning. No cars had been reported stolen in Ann Arbor for two days. No motorcycles, mopeds, or even a freaking 10-speed for that matter. So Dossie probably hadn't driven anywhere. And on top of that, it looked as if something was wrong with his right leg. Brian Vanderpine, the Ann Arbor cop who discovered the murder scene, was the first to notice Dossie's bloody footprints in the apartment hallway. Despite the fact that blood was splattered all over the hall, Vanderpine only found prints made by a left foot. They hadn't found any marks that might have been left by a crutch, so Vanderpine ventured the hypothesis that Dossie was hopping. So now you had a man, a huge man, without a car or any means of transportation, committing what amounted to a spontaneous murder, leaving in a hurry, probably without the time to plan anything or the forethought to call a cab, and they checked and no taxi had picked up a fare anywhere near the area that day, and he was hopping all the way. That was the key. People would remember if they saw someone hopping, and no one had reported any such person despite the ubiquitous news coverage. All of these elements led due to one conclusion. Dossie probably hadn't left the apartment complex at all. Most everybody figured he was long gone, but they based their decisions on fabricated info 
saying Dossie had terrorist connections that could help him fade into the woodwork. The army of cops had checked inside every apartment in Building B, so he wasn't there. But how far could he have gone? There were 17 buildings in the complex, with 12 apartments in each building, four apartments each on three floors. An army of cops had knocked on every door in the entire complex, asking if anyone had seen or heard anything strange. No one had, but not all the apartments were occupied. Some people were at work, some were just gone. There hadn't been time for a background check on every apartment owner to find out if each one was supposed to be home or not. No signs of forced entry. Dossie hadn't broken in anywhere. But that didn't mean Dossie wasn't in one of those apartments. Maybe with a hostage. Maybe forcing someone to say that everything was fine. Dew stuck with his instincts. If Dossie had blood on his feet, he might also have it elsewhere on his person. The obvious bloody footprints had led out to Dossie's car, but each print held less and less blood. And at the car, the last of it appeared to have worn off his boot. A man wounded, hopping, moving fast. He might fall, and if he did, that hypothetical additional blood might leave a mark in the snow. So Dew had walked a circle around Building B. He'd found nothing. So he'd walked around again, staring at the ground the whole time. He walked back to Dossie's car. Undisturbed snow in front of the hood indicated that someone, probably Dossie, had stood there not too long before. All the footprints in front of the car were from a left foot. You had to look very closely to see that detail, but once he saw it, he couldn't unsee it. Dossie, crippled leg and all, had stood right there. Hell, he'd probably watched Vanderpine enter his apartment building. Dew squatted in front of the car. His cold knees throbbed at the effort. The CIA's lead agent has arthritis, he mused. There's something you don't see in the movies. Crouched in front of the beat-up, rust-speckled Ford, Dew looked at the door to Building B. He felt an unexpected surge of adrenaline. Dossie had been in the same spot. Dossie had watched the two cops enter the building, watched the door shut behind them, and then he... He did what? Dew looked around his position, trying to see the terrain through the eyes of an infected man. On his left was Washtenaw Avenue, the main road that shuttled traffic between upscale Ann Arbor and low-rent Ypsilanti. It was full of ever-present 35-mile-an-hour traffic. If he'd gone that way, someone would have noticed the hopping man. Dossie wouldn't have wanted that. Too much noise. Too many people. Dew looked to his right, down the apartment complex's road. There were more apartments. A shitload more apartments. Almost no traffic. Curtains and shades all drawn against the winter cold. Nobody looking. Nobody walking. That's what Dossie wanted. It was quiet. It looked full of hiding places. Bushes, shrubs. The cop army had searched all of those hiding places and found nothing. Not even a footprint or snow knocked off a bush branch. But it was the dead of winter. Why hide in a snow-covered bush when you could hide in a nice, warm apartment? That's what Dossie had seen. He had just committed a brutal murder, then watched two cops enter his building. Dew reminded himself of the raging paranoia exhibited by all the victims. Dossie had watched the cops go in, known they were coming for him, known they'd find the body. He'd wanted to find a hiding place and find one fast. Dew came out from the hiding spot, grunting as he stood, his knees complaining against the unkind treatment. 
he walked towards Building G. Despite the fact that his pulse raced like a high-octane engine, he moved with deliberate slowness, examining the ground with a renewed focus. You have been listening to Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy by Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.